Hello, everybody. Today you have Jake and Seth, and we're going to be discussing the 2023 thriller, uh, biological, I'm sorry, biological, biographical thriller, Oppenheimer, directed and written by Christopher Nolan. It's based on the 2005 Pulitzer Prize winning biography, American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. Uh, The film chronicles the career of theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. As I'm sure we're all familiar, for those who aren't, he overran or oversaw or ran the Manhattan Project during World War II, which led to the creation of the nuclear bomb or atomic bomb. Uh, The cast includes Cillian Murphy as Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh, and honestly, probably like a dozen other like very good young qualified actors and actresses. Like it's it's a really an all star cast. The film was made for a budget of a hundred million, and it's made more than five hundred sixty one million already. Uh, this isn't going to approach um, Nolan's best films, like the billion dollar marks he's done with some of the Batman's. But this is movie is really successful. It's doing really well. It is doing well in the midst of like a tough, really this this and Barbie kind of turn around the summer blockbuster or summer box office. And it's really just huge success. And if you can't tell, I loved it. I'm excited about it. So Seth, I've been going on long enough, throwing it to you. Yeah. What were your thoughts, initial thoughts? Yeah, well, I was, I mean, I will say not been to the theater in a long time. And so to get to go, and I saw this in the IMAX theater, um, with my brother and my father um so again like i don't think i'd seen a movie to with them since pre-pandemic um so it was just kind of like a cool experience to like go back to a movie theater to see a big movie um that we were all kind of anticipating um i was happy i saw it on the imax um i thought it was a good movie i mean i i think i'm still kind of letting it um i'm still digesting it a bit i guess is what i would say um there are definitely things that jumped out to me that i really liked some performances i i was i was really captivated by um i would say there was also as i thought about it more there were some things that kind of creeped into my but a, a different decision here done a different thing there but overall i thought it was a really cool experience honestly um it's a really interesting subject too um i think oppenheimer himself is also like kind of a fascinating person both because um also because of his like just kind of his political thoughts and intrigue um and also you know the position he was put in at the time he was put in that position and the the moral sort of like obligations that were forced upon him again i I don't know that any other person in history kind of could have bared such a weight that he he was bearing at that time and to make some of the monumental decisions that he was making not just for the time he's living in but you know it has this ripple effect into the future of history and so i do think it's like kind of this very interesting existential subject um and it's kind of this brilliant man in the middle of it too so you know just the story itself i thought was a was a great one for nolan to kind of pick up on what i loved was how the depiction I loved and what I thought was, I don't know if this is new or something that felt new to me in terms of the stories we've seen. And as we always joke, there's only like seven or eight stories. What I really loved how they focus on Oppenheimer, not only like the moral question you mentioned as they're building up to the bomb, as they're actually building the bomb and building up to the Trinity test and the detonation, but afterwards when the cat's out of the bag or <clears throat> to use the, that Greek, um, Pandora's box. box yeah yeah like it's out and but to see him then it's and it's to see him pivot and realize that like and him trying to like tame the storm or ride the storm and obviously the security hearings and everything that falls out like all the backlash to him really trying to do the right thing I, I just was really impressed by that and I, I was impressed with how that was part of the story and I felt like how that unfolded and how that resonated with the rest of the themes and the story itself and the other thing I just wanted to note too was, uh, I think the movie kind of the movie alludes to it, but it doesn't quite touch on it. Like we talking about the moral dilemmas from the time the Manhattan Project started to that two two and a half three year span, like the fates really did turn. Like in the 1941, 1942, the Allies were getting their asses kicked. Like they were like the right. Axis was advancing across everywhere. They had, and they were adv- ahead in the nuclear technology. Like it was bad. 
Right. And then it was just interesting. And that was just one area where I wish they kind of spent a little more time, like just on that conversation. Like we started this, this, like this, these type of movements take time. It's like to borrow the phrase, the Japanese use like you woke a stirring giant, but it takes time for these massive things to move. And I just thought that was interesting that they kind of alluded to, but like they didn't really focus on was that, when they started building the bomb, it was so much more dire. But by the time they finished, like for things outside their control, like when they started, they thought that was how they would win, or at least by getting it first would prevent Germany from winning, or like. And so, right. I, I yeah, no, I, like yeah, I, I do think like the idea that Germany was going to make that bomb before anybody else was like horrifying, especially to the physicists that like truly understood the power of it. I think, and so that's We're really. Jewish. So they yeah, like exactly, knew firsthand yeah. what was going on. And that's really the seed for like why the project, why so much money was put into the project because of that fear of fascism having control of such a powerful weapon. But you're right. What's interesting is like after the two or three years that they're working on it, you know, they basically defeated Germany, but then the situation changes. Like, well, Japan's never going to surrender. So how do we get Japan to surrender? And it's like, well, we're going to drop this bomb on them. And like, we're going to let make them aware that we could keep doing this until they do surrender. And so the means for which it's used, even in World War II, dramatically, where it's like, instead of being this thing where, you know, we're going to beat the Nazis with it, it becomes the thing of like, we need to, we need Japan to surrender so soldiers. Uh, one of the things about that was, and I was, I was curious for your take. I was surprised they didn't spend more time talking about the deterrence for the Soviet Union. And th that's an argument that I've heard in the past that, that the bombs were really dropped, not for Japan. They were delivered as a message to the Soviet Union. And like, similarly, that message they wanted to deliver, one, that we can do it, and two, that we can keep doing it. Like, that was not for Japan. That was for all future enemies and allies alike. And that was one area where that was the one element of the film that I wish... I understand why they didn't, but a little more time spent on some of those tangents I thought would have been really helpful. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I think Nolan did a pretty good job of sticking to like, this is a biographical film about this person. Um, and I think he kind of yeah. really adheres to that. And so I think that would be my guess. But you're right. Like, those are interesting subjects for sure. Like, I think, you know, seeing a, a conversation like in the oval office or in the pentagon or something about like hey like we're gonna do this to japan but we want everyone to know that we have this technology and that we could do it to anybody and like that really does announce to the world like you know don't mess with us anymore like we can do something that um you know has never even been fathomed before and i i mean i i do think specifically for the soviet union that's I mean, I'm not, I'm, it, again, it's hard to say exactly when people fully understood that that was going to be the long-term enemy for the next 40 years during the Cold War. But it's clear, like, even in the, even during the Manhattan Project, the security um, is so paranoid about Soviet spies and, and people from the USSR. It's just like, clearly that those seeds have been planted already. So I do think, like, despite the fact that, you know, World War II was winding down, people were kind of like, the Soviets are really what, what we're worried about. And the one thing I did like about that aspect was they did play into the fact that two well-meaning people can turn each other into enemies by just being cautious. Because if you're both cautious and you both start taking steps, it can spin out of control quickly. But the one thing I quickly wanted to know before we get away from it, because the other thing that I did like was it was just one line. And by, I'm no, by no means an expert. I certainly haven't run the, read the Oppenheimer book. But I listened to a couple podcasts about the Manhattan Project. Uh, but what was interesting was the number one thing contributor, one of the main beliefs about why the Nazis were surpassed so quickly by America outside of our industrial, outside of what we did correct, was that the two things, first of all, all the best physicists were Jewish. And so that they were mostly like driven out or captured or not working their best or trying to escape. And the other element was on top of that, the modern physics, and I might mess up the the uh, distinctions or, or the the studies, but because they were most because it was mostly found by Jewish scientists, right? Hitler demanded they use Aryan physics, which was really nothing. It was like it was like math plus hocus pocus, and that <laughs> those two things in effect. And the other thing was Heisenberg, who was their most brilliant scientist and who they thought could do things. 
uh, could actually make progress. The whole thing was, is once the war really started, like in 1941, like once things started to turn, they kept using him as a political tool, like bringing him out, like using him as a prop and like showing, look how smart we are. We haven't lost all these scientists. And the end result of that was because he was so busy being political, he had no time to focus on the science. And, And it was just interesting. We've talked about this, I feel like in history, but more so in the context of art imitating history, those type of systems that are like just negative like naturally like it's violent and nasty and it's just interesting to see like how that played out like this is a system that crushed itself by like the very ideology yeah erased all advantages it had in the war like i just find that so fascinating and i understand why they didn't i understand why that's not a theme here but like i just that was one of i felt like a million things in this movie that I thought they did a really good job of tapping into and like not enough that like it's a diversion, but just enough. It's like a little nugget. It's like a little like vein of yeah. history, like gold vein. I, I really like that. Yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, you, you know, you compare that to what the Americans were doing and the diversity of people that they were bringing together on that project. And then even Oppenheimer himself, like the focus that they had and the number of people that they had and I Oppenheimer's ability to kind of like, understand all the different pieces and mechanisms involved and all the different technology and and like you know theoretical physics involved um again i think that's kind of his genius and i think they do illustrate that well where it's like it's not just that he was like a smart person it's that like he was able to kind of like you know utilize different personalities and different types of people and all their different like specializations and then like bring it together on this one thing which is like i think extremely hard especially like these scientists you know they're not they're all brilliant they're not, yeah social birds like they're they're all very you know egotistical and um maybe even a little bit on the spectrum right and so to kind of bring together all of that and have like a, a unified community kind of and all working together toward one goal it's a you know I think, again, I, I do think that's kind of like his genius in, in terms of the project and everything. Yeah, I mean, I thought they did a good job of showing how he's bringing people like uh, the Josh Hartnett, like the Teller character, like your classic blue blood right. American. You have the, I'm sorry, I said Teller. Um, I can't remember his name, but um, that character, Teller was the was the Jewish uh, character played by Safdie. But like you have these Eastern Europeans, you also have these like, you have Eastern Europeans escaping the Soviet Union. You have Germans, Jewish Germans escaping Germany. and the, But then you also have American communists working with the, <laughs> like these military scientists. And I just thought they did a good job of showing all those different dynamics. And to your point, um, the I thought Cillian Murphy did a great job. It's that indefinable or almost hard almost indefinable quality of leadership about like to anyone else that would just be a group of people and you couldn't tame them. But to him, he's like the maestro and can get them to do what, get them to do what he needs. And there are a couple, there are only a few scenes, but there's like one scene where he mentions like, and I love it. It was in the trailer. He's like, I can work this miracle. He's basically like, let me do these things. Like I can do it. Like, let me, let me and my people work. And I just thought, for I've heard the criticism for it's just a bunch of guys in a room talking. That, <laughs> guess what? That's what movies are outside of comic book movies. So I, I I don't get when people say that, but that they do that here. And like the best thing about this film is it's about guys in rooms talking, but every time they're speaking, it's about a bigger concept, like whether it's like theoretical right. physics or not. And the film nails, I feel like every depiction of those larger themes in each conversation. So I, if you can't tell, I love it. Obviously, I love it. I'm like I was just blown away by the film. Yeah, I mean, I thought Murphy's performance was really good. Um, I do think it's a hard thing to do to portray, like, super intelligence. Um, I don't think that's an easy... That's, like, not a natural thing for any actor, especially if it's an actor that isn't that smart, you know? I think, you know, funnily enough, um, you know, Damon kind of made his career on that. When when he um, when he portrayed Goodwill Hunting early on and, like, had his breakthrough, I think Damon has that same quality where he can kind of portray this super intelligence whether he has it or not, I think Murphy can do the same thing. Um, and so I, it is it is a hard quality to define for sure. Um, and I think it's a hard thing to portray in a performance. But I really did. I liked Murphy's performance a lot. I apologize for cutting you off there before I got to, I got too excited. But I was going to – you mentioned Damon, and it was funny. I thought of Downey Jr. as Stark. But now yeah, that we're talking about it, yeah. 
you have Rami Malek is I can't blank in on his name, but he was the villain. He's like the super genius in one of the Bonds movies. Kenneth Branagh is always playing a, like a really intelligent characters, whether it's Poirot or someone else. And or and I just one of the things, or I mean, he and Downey Jr. have also both portrayed Sherlock in multiple iterations. And now that you say that, it's funny. All these different characters have all these actors that have played really intelligent characters and. Cillian Murphy is doing it here too with this like super intelligence and I think he's I'm not gonna say he's done a better job than them but I like his intelligence because his super intelligence to me feels like real like it's like not I'm not inventing a super suit like he is doing something crazier than that like he's inventing a new energy source but it's just it everything about it and it's probably because of who directed it how it's written and that it's actually real but his super genius to me feels scarier and more powerful stark or any anything uh, anything else that we've seen in the past like we're taking a quick break and we'll be right back and we are back from our break yeah so um, I thought Downey's performance was one of the best performances I can remember him giving. Um, and that's saying a lot. Like, I think he's got a lot of great performances, but this one, I really was kind of, um, surprised at how well he, he did in that role, changing that character. Like, you almost feel like it's a positive character early on, and then he kind of becomes the villain by the end of the film. And so I thought that was a, a really cool transformation to watch. Um, I also, I just think like, um... He almost, I felt like he almost stole the movie from Murphy at, at a few points. Like, I, I really thought his performance. I have heard some criticism about the third act and how it's like, you know, it's this guy that doesn't get to become part of the presidential cabinet. And like, is that that big of a deal? And like, I don't, you know, I, I don't really think that's like the point of that third act, although that is kind of like the resolution of the movie, I guess. But like, I, I think he's more of a representation of like, the quote-unquote swamp in government and like power that hides behind and that you can't that's the type of person that can ruin somebody's reputation like like Oppenheimer um and kind of like do things without people fully noticing and so again I thought I thought his performance was really crucial to the movie and I just thought uh you know if anybody gets nominated I hope that Downey does I couldn't agree more I I think he's gonna be nominated in one I think it's the best role I've seen him in if I appreciate that other people might not think of this as one of his best roles, but going past Tony Stark, the first in the first film, going past Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, like I feel like this is the best work he's done since the 90s, or like this feels like some of the best work I haven't seen Chaplin, or if I have, it's been too long. So he's great he's in Chaplin. Incredible. I would recommend it. I would recommend anybody to watch Chaplin because he's amazing in that movie. I think that movie, also Natural Born Killers, um, I think he does a great job in, in his role in that movie as well. So those would be like kind of the early downy parts that I might compare it to. No, and he's great. And the thing that took me, uh, what I loved about the character, I've heard those complaints too about the third act. The way I viewed that was, it's the triumph and tragedy. The third act is the tragedy. And I, I understood that they felt it was rushed, but to me it worked. Like I yeah. viewed it as <clears throat> I liked, I understand those complaints. I liked the way it was set up and I didn't mind in the third act because I was interested and I didn't know about the hearing. So I wasn't sure how it was. So I didn't know how it was going to go. And to your point, my takeaway wasn't like, my take on that was that, the only person who can kill a great man is a small man because it's only a small man would want to kill a great man. And that was the whole thing about Strauss. And I thought Robert Downey Jr. But he, like, he played Strauss with this, I don't want to say like sympathy, but like a level of humanity, like from that first interaction, like, Oh, from a lowly sales shoe salesman to this. Right, and Downey right. Jr. is like, Nope, just the shoe salesman. But like in that voice and, the one thing I do feel like, even though I didn't know much about the history of Strauss or anything, it was pretty obvious he was the bad guy. Like, as soon as there yeah. was any conspiracy, like, there, only because there was no one else who was a real candidate, like, there was no yeah. one above him that we met outside of Truman, who, like, you only meet once. 
and those generals who are going in the room one. So for me, like it didn't work on that element, but at the same time, I wasn't thinking of it as a like movie mystery, but as a historical mystery, because I was interested to see what went. And I will say this to see like Oppenheimer clearly paid a price for his, like for what do you want to call it success or not? But it was interesting. Strauss also paid a price like for, and it was just interesting. And without going too deep into it, I was very fascinated by that. And when I looked into it, pretty much everyone associated with that, like there were there was fallout for all of them, not just Strauss, but the two scientists were basically banned from like academic circles, and the guy Roger Robb, who was like the main guy, I think his it it looked like he became a judge and so had some successful career, but like he was known for this, and like they were kind of known, like they became associated with this McCarthyism, which obviously, as we're watching this movie more than nearly eighty years later, it hasn't aged well, and so it, I just thought that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, for sure, um, I, and I also think like. You know, there's this whole idea of like, you know, there's Soviet communism, which is a real thing. And then I think there was also just kind of like this American idealized version of communism, I guess, or, you know, more like theoretical communism. And like, I don't think there's anything wrong with with people kind of talking and thinking about different types of government and different ways. And so, you know, I think that played a part, too, where it's like it's clear to me Oppenheimer had an open mind and like had conversations with people about communism and other subjects. You know, I don't think it's like it's you know it's so hard to label somebody that complex into one thing but then when you get into a hearing like that especially when it's not a fair trial you know it's very easy to kind of be like you had all these communist connections you had an ex-wife that was a communist you know you had a brother that was a communist they were part of the kind and it's like even so you know that doesn't speak to the mind and also it's like it's unfair to label all those people soviet communists you know it's just like they were people trading ideas and it was interesting. First of all, he worked at schools and institutions where there's naturally there's going to be groups from every uh, people from every group. And the other thing, too, is this is a point they kind of touch on in the film, too, that there were there there were American communists and there were and that's actually like kind of plays into the Trotskyism, Stalinism, like and yeah. I'm not an expert, but I believe there was like an idea of Sovietism or excuse me, of Sovietism being like self-sustained, like each one living like each country having a like a self-sustaining group and really like being somewhat independent. And the Stalinism was, I, I believe the term was like one country where it was really not, it was more empirical where everything was being pushed out from a center country being Russia. I, I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying and I'm sure getting some things wrong, but that was something they played into. And one of the things that in my limited research did has come out specifically during World War II and after World War II was that there were a lot of American American communists who became disillusioned with the Soviet communism after the war yes. when they were occupying some of the like and so that that actually was a breaking point and that uh, some and that the recognition was American communists felt like they weren't actually supporting this idealized left wing power to the people like demo- like democracy, which in effect Sovietism is left wing democracy. Like at, at its heart, right. it is supposed to be democratic, and they realized they were being used as a pawn to really support something else that they viewed uh, Stalin and Stalinism as. And so I won't say anything else, but like even that, like that's something they spend maybe a few minutes on. And there's so much rich history there, and like I think they do a good job speaking to that without getting bogged down in anything. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I, I like the, you're right. There's a lot of stuff in the in the movie where it's like. If you went down that rabbit hole, that's another two-hour movie. You know, if you really wanted to examine, you know, the the communist aspects of it, again, like, you could kind of keep going down that right. And so I do think Nolan does a good job of kind of keeping the train on the tracks. And, like, yes, he will touch on some of these other issues that are super interesting. But, like, to kind of make this movie work, you got to keep it moving in the right direction. So I think you're right. I think he does a good job kind of, like, balance, doing that balancing act um, for sure. Um I mean, I, you know, also at the same time, like it is post FDR, right? And so this whole idea of unionization and stuff, you know, that's also clearly like a thing that's happening between these people where it's like they all, everyone kind of wants their own rights, um, even if they're a worker. And so, and again, like I think some of that stuff I agree with and some of that stuff, you know, I think, I think you're right. Like at post war, a lot of people were disillusioned with it. And so, you know, it, it's just, it's so not, it's so clearly it's not like a black and white thing. And so once you're in that trial room and the, they're trying to 
paint it as a black and white thing. It's just like it's so cringeworthy to see it happening to this guy that like Asa was so clearly like you know loyal to America and trying to help America win this war. And uh, yeah, that's his reward. And uh, again, one of the, some of the limited research I did was uh, Werner Werner von Braun, one of America's favorite Nazis, uh, head of the Project Paper, one of the crown jewels of Project Paperclip. Um, he put it best. He was. If Robert Oppenheimer was in, was British, he would be knighted. In yeah. America, he's tried. And it yeah. just speaks to... And what's interesting here, again, I'll, I'll be brief, but going back to democracies and like the theme, like some historical themes, that was something Athens frequently would do back in the ancient days. They would, once they were heroes, what would happen was people would become scared because heroes become so popular they think they could become tyrants. So they would chase them out of town and there was one, the, the Themistocles stopped the first, was a hero in the first Persian War. So he killed the King Darius himself. Uh, and he became so popular that he ended up being banished from Greece and ended up joining the Persian Empire. And like, <laughs> as a soldier, because he had to, he never invaded Greece. But, and he, guess what? He wasn't around 10 years later when they came back. And so it just, it, it's obviously, uh, we're no, obviously, history repeats itself and so i just yeah, thought like, no, that's, that's a good I, point yeah the, when people do get that big you're right people in government get scared of it they don't want somebody especially i mean the way that um oppenheimer is kind of voicing his opinions about the hydrogen bomb and about you know atomic bombs in the future that was a you know the, the most powerful voice on the topic at that time and like they clearly people wanted that voice to be silenced and once that technology was unleashed you know the government they wanted to be in charge of it. They did not want, you know, the scientists were no longer in charge of that technology. They created it. And then, you know, they, it, they like you said, you know, Pandora's box was opened and the people in charge took over. I, you know, I think it's kind of as simple as that a little bit. Um, I mean, it, what I thought was interesting was, and they do touch on this a little bit with the Niels Bohr character, but they, they created this technology that changed the world. But to Groves and the army, it's just a bomb. And that's yeah. all they saw it as. It's a bomb and it's a political chip. And there's no, at any point, there's no talk about like using this energy to fundamentally change how you power cities or any, like there's nothing like that. And I just, and clearly we're still not there, uh, but it just was interesting. And that was something, my favorite thing about this film was I feel like all the questions it made me ask like that, that had, there's no real subtext for that in the film. It just made me think about that. Like I just like, I really, really enjoyed this film, and obviously, because my by my gushing, and we joked as we were preparing for this. You mentioned about like how it's three hours, and I've been whining about that. This for me, this to me is the film that deserves and like earns three hours. Like, yeah, like yeah, if you want me to yeah. sit there and take a scalpel, I'm sure I could like find some scenes, but like, no, I liked it. Like from was from the slow start of showing him as a student. Like, I thought that was necessary. Like, one of the things that one of the other criticisms I heard is this is a portal and not a portrait. And I like disagree. I, I think it's somewhat both of the character. It might not be the most in-depth character study, but for having to cover like a lifetime, for having to be a mile wide and an inch deep, I think it does really well at, at what it's trying yeah. to do. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I thought it was a, you know, very much a true biography. I do think that like, the non-linear storytelling where he's kind of cutting back and forth between the trial um, and kind of like Oppenheimer's life, I thought, you know, was an interesting technique and gave it a little bit, broke it up a little bit the right way so that the viewer doesn't get bogged down like in his early life or in some of his early relationships. You know, you're always jumping back up to that trial and kind of seeing what just happened get, get reanalyzed between these people who are judging him so severely, right? And so... You know, again, it's an interesting technique to kind of show the viewer what's going on in his life and then show how we got judged in that trial. Um, I also think the way that Einstein was used in the movie, I thought was really smart, too. I think that's something where, like, that's a character that could be overused or also, like, a performance that could be overplayed. And I thought they did a really good job of, like, look, we're only going to bring him in, like, two or three times. He's going to have a few lines. But all of those scenes, I thought, were, like, really riveting and really interesting. Um and so, again, I think, again, it, like, there's a lot of characters in this movie. It's a lot of performances. Casey Affleck shows up for two minutes. You know, 
uh gary oldman shows up as truman for a couple minutes and so i think there's a lot of like stuff like that happening but i did find the einstein scenes to be really good what'd you think about those i love them i also to your point to me it was like a little seasoning they sprinkle it in and i also love like the question around their conversation what was it about and like yeah like just how what whether or not it really played into strauss's mindset but for how pivotal it was for strauss to like seeming like starting this like starting the animosity to and just how again Oppenheimer wasn't even thinking about him and that's how it happens <laughs> these great men are defeated because they don't even realize like this small insecure little man is threatened by him. and right there's one thing powerful men hate it's someone who disagrees with them and it's someone who's smarter than them and disagrees with them and someone who's more powerful and smarter who disagrees with them like that strikes one two and three and everything about that whole conversation about glory wanting the limelight and power needing darkness to move and quiet, like being quiet. Right. I thought that played out really well. Like, yeah, it's a little on the nose in that conversation, but I like that. And then for a three hour movie about these big themes, like you need it. And I also believe that if you were ever to have that conversation, it would be in that situation, like as you're venting about like your political career being completely unraveled. Um, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I also, I thought, I just thought that that technique too, just in terms of film technique, to show Einstein and Oppenheimer having a conversation early on, and you see it from Strauss's point of view. So you don't know what they say. Einstein won't even look Strauss in the eye as he walks by. And so Strauss takes that as a personal affront that Oppenheimer turned, turned Einstein against him. When in fact, and then like, as you go through the movie, you see the conversation they have about I think it's called atmospheric ignition or something like that, where it's like there's the this kind of slim potential that if they set off an atomic bomb, the atmosphere might also ignite and in the chain reaction you might destroy the entire world. Again, because it had never been done, that's a horrifying thought to happen, right? And like all they say all the math is like it's near zero, but it can't be absolutely zero. And so he like, you know, Oppenheimer decides I need to check with Einstein about this. I wish I could check some of my math with Einstein from time to time, but I thought I just thought that was cool that he's like, I'm gonna double check with him and see what he thinks. And so I, it's cool that you have that moment where Einstein kind of looks over the formula and he's like, take the math as far as you can go and trust that. But if it's not the case, then you have to tell some like you gotta tell people we're not gonna do this. We're like we're not gonna set the world on fire just to create this bomb to beat the Nazis. Um, but then afterwards too, at the I mean the very end of the movie when they reveal how that conversation goes and Oppenheimer tells Einstein, like, you know, even though we didn't blow up the world, I think we did like destroy it. And I think it's a great line to end the movie on. Um, and it also kind of ties up both of those main characters. It ties up Oppenheimer's kind of stance on atomic bombs after the Manhattan project and also ties up what happened with Strauss. And you're right. It's like, it's this guy that's insignificant compared to these other scientists um, and he just takes that moment so personally, and it's not even about him. And it's like, again, just perfectly encapsulates that character. What I really liked about that, too, like the juxtaposition was talking about the moment not being about him. Oppenheimer has that same conversation with Truman and he's going to yeah. Truman and like and he's trying to have this honest moment with Truman, like this real human moment. And I like the way Truman plays it, too, because he doesn't come off to me. He's not callous. Like, I, I believe that Truman felt some human uh, capital or human remorse as well. But, like, talk about politician versus scientist. Like, Tru right. Truman just letting him down. Like, this is never about you. This is bigger than you. And the way I read that was, like, to me, that felt like Truman saying it was bigger than him, too. Like, I, I, I might be giving him too much credit of the character, but I read Truman as, and this might be informed by my own historical opinion, or, or but, like, I read Truman, I didn't think he was a bad guy, but he was a scary guy. Because to me, he's the type of guy who would drop two bombs, the way he's depicted in this, he would drop bombs for, like, maybe, quote-unquote, practical reasons and not moral reasons. And I, without going too deep down that rabbit hole, I just love that. Like, that one, like, this isn't about you. Like, they don't care about who built it. They care about who dropped it. So, like, right. just in that whole thing where it's him, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we, we do it better than anyone this white guys this white like he just took oppenheimer's like trauma and was like no no this isn't about you it's about me or it's about us and it's like i yeah. just thought it, that was amazing and I, and 
that compared with Strauss, and like I'm not saying that Oppenheimer is small compared to Truman, but he is like in this world, like he yeah. is because that's the thing. Truman dropped it, he made it, like, and it's just again, it's like this. There's always a bigger fish. Yeah, no, definitely, and like I do think, you know, despite all of Oppenheimer's like moral dilemmas and stuff, um, I do think in that moment Truman really does claim responsibility. He's like, it was my decision. I dropped the bomb. You know, it's like he claim like for better or worse, he claims all. The- and I, 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 you know, it's not like I don't think Oppenheimer wanted to be known as the guy responsible for it. And like, ultimately, I think he's known as the guy that created it. Right. Like he's known as the father of the atomic bomb. He's not known as the guy that dropped the bomb on Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Right. Like that's still Truman, basically, for the most part. And so I do think that that kind of holds true. Right. I don't think anyone would deprive the American military industrial complex of their of their. Uh, of, and I say that jokingly, I guess Oppenheimer's part of that. No, I agree with you. I, to me. He built the weapon. Yeah, I do not blame him for it being dropped. Like if that to me, uh, that I don't. I. It's whoever drops the weapon, not who built it. It's whoever points the gun, not who built it. That's how. Without going too deep down, well, I didn't mean to go down that. But to me, I blame Truman. And to your point, you said it. The way he took credit was that it's like he was offended, like because it seemed like he had come to terms with it. And it's like so you're coming yeah. here, tell me you have blood on. Our, like you're telling me we have blood on our hands right like, f you i'm the president like no i have blood on my hands like you can, you can go piss off little scientists and i just thought like that was that was part like it was one scene and there are just so many like examples of that like it's one or two like interactions and they nail it yeah for sure um i mean uh, so i mean i'm gonna I'll, I'll try to get into a couple of my critiques here really quick yeah, please. You go first. I, I, I was saving it because I do have a few, but you go first. So I, w- I would say I agree with you. Like, I, I hear that critique about like it's a bunch of white guys in a room just talking to each other. Um, I kind of felt at a certain point I was like, how many scenes am I going to watch of white scientists introducing themselves to each other? And shaking each other's head, like you know that there's that movie Spies Like Us with Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, and that there's that scene where it's like doctor, 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 and they're all shaking their like. I did feel like there was in this movie where every new scene, I was seeing a new scientist, and they were shaking hands and really introducing themselves, and it's like okay, you know, I might have tightened it up a little bit in terms of the total cast and tried to have just a smaller group of scientists that I could have kind of like keep a hold of. I mean. I definitely felt like there were some I was able to, you know, the Josh Hartnett character um, and the the character that was kind of focused on the hydrogen bomb. I think those two kind of stuck out a little bit more, Uh, you know, the Rami Mel character too, but also it's just like, it felt like there were so many people and it was so hard for me to wrap my mind across the entire cast and keep people in order and everything. We're taking a quick break and we'll be right back. And we are back from our break. I certainly don't disagree with you. I mean, like, I like David Krumholtz, but him as Isadora Isaac Rabbi, like, he didn't, like, I get he's a friend, but, like, there's a Michael Ingenero, and I agree, there's too many characters, like, and I agree, I agree with your critique. The things that stood out to me or and you kind of touched on this with the females talk about female energy i mean the big knock against nolan is that he can't really do female characters well and like that to me like the two big characters are florence Pugh and emily blunt and they're both negative female stereotypes you have the suicidal mistress who can't live without him like she's so dependent on him it's like she's the crazy unstable like femme fatale (laughs) And then there's Emily Blunt, who, like, they kind of position, like, I feel like as this cold, opportunistic, alcoholic, like, kind of, like, nagging wife. Like, she's not really supportive. Like, And, like, I get that that's part of the tension, too, and it's their tension. And the whole point is, like, one of the big culminations in the third act is when she's, like, unloading on me. Like, why won't you fight back? And he finally explains his reasoning. And I like that scene. It makes sense to me. That's, like... The one yeah. scene she's allowed to cook and it really it really works for me. But that was the yeah, three hours, lack of female energy, 
Uh, and then, like, you have, like, Olivia Thurlby in this, like, th- throwaway role. Like, I think he was trying to do more with the female characters, but it just, to me, it, it was a little... It was his usual disappointment. Yeah, I mean, I hear like And, like, I do think it's a little bit unfair about those stereotypes because, like, it's a true story, right? So it's, like, that's who those people were for the most part. Um, I agree, I though. mean, the way that they're... De- like, we only see them as that. Like, we don't have a scene with yeah. her and, like, Cillian Murphy, like having a drink, having fun. They're like having sex, she's nagging them, or she's like committing suicide. And it's right. like pretty similar with Emily Blunt. Like I I just not to derail you, but yeah, that totally hear you. No, well. for sure. Um and I do I mean it's funny because like going into the movie I I had heard there were like, oh these risque scenes with Florence Pugh and Murphy and they're both naked. And I was like, there really wasn't that risky. I mean I've definitely seen, you know, more risque stuff in movies. And so I don't know if it's because like you're just seeing naked bodies on an IMAX screen that people were a little like taken aback by it or what the deal was. So wait, let's. I want to quickly note that I also heard of that quote unquote scandal. What she was naked. She's an adult. <laughs> like she's she's an adult actress. I'm sure she's being compensated for the film. I don't think she's doing it for free. Like I, you can't be naked in a film like I that. Yeah. I, I mean, some of that to me might just be like, hey, these Nolan fanboys went to a, a you know a movie that was R-rated instead of PG-13, and they saw some nudity, and it was like not expected. I mean, that's the only kind of thing I can think because I didn't think there was anything. What you know, guy would? What what guy? Anything. No, the outrage isn't coming from young teenage Nolan <laughs> bros who got to see Florence Pugh naked. It's like I I, I don't know what it, I think it's just uh, like uh without going too deep. I don't know who it is. I think it's just people who want to be annoyed. I yeah, I think these yeah. are like the quote unquote trolls, like who don't consider themselves trolls, but they hate the Marvel movies because there's not a gay person in it. And then they hate the movie because there's a gay person, but they're not depicted the way they really want them to be. Like it's those type. It, it's and when yeah. I say that, to put that in context, I think of Thor Ragnarok, which was blasted for having an LGBTQ character, but she didn't. It wasn't there was a big backlash because she wasn't like a big enough, it wasn't a big enough part of her identity. So then in the next film, they make it a bigger part of the identity and they add another LGBTQ character and it ended up costing them some like money in terms of distribution to some like countries. Then there was more backlash because it wasn't enough. Like, Oh, it's like, then they want Marvel to be happy. So where I'm saying, I think there is like a part of the critical community that is, that likes to be outraged and it likes to be outraged at things that it thinks white guys like that. Like that's a weird, that's a deep dive, but that's really what I think. I just think it's like, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what people were expecting, but like I going into the movie, I knew it wasn't going to be no one making a Batman movie. Like I was kind of expecting more of a Oscar bait type of movie. And I think those types of scenes are pretty common. So, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think people are looking for something to be outraged by. And if that's the thing they clung on to, sure. There's some nudity in the in the movie. There's anything wrong with it though. Um. <laughs> it's a movie about us vaporizing two cities, probably needlessly. But yeah, be concerned about the nudity people. That's the message you should take away from this film. So okay, let's talk about this too. Um, so the the big scene that they set off the atomic bomb, right? This is really the reason why you'd watch this movie in IMAX. Yeah. Um, the there's not a lot of action in the movie. They finally do the Trinity test. Yeah, they set off the bomb. I thought I thought it was well shot. I thought um, the sequence went well. You know, the cutting back to the people watching it, the the scientists' reactions, and also the explosion itself. Technically, I thought it was really well done. Uh, I was it's again I was happy I watched it in IMAX. I have heard some people though mad that they didn't try to recreate Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Um, and so I don't know if you went into this expecting to see those explosions or what they are like. I just think some people, I think, wanted to see bombs going off. Um, and b- the fact that you only get really one scene like that may have disappointed them. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I don't know. Do you have any take on that? I wasn't sure what to expect. And I, part of me did think there might be more focus on, on the bombings themselves. But at the same time, I, like to the point we made before, he didn't drop them and as the movie right. put the focus on truman like i think that's like it makes sense that the i think it's a conscious storytelling point because for him the that's where it didn't stop it's clear he's worried about it but for him he he wasn't worried about those two bombs he was worried about the third bomb that would be dropped in war yeah. and so i felt like that was the pivot 
And the other thing I would say, um, I think there's an argument for it. I think there are good reasons not to, though. Like one, just out of taste, like not wanting to show that. Uh, and both from like uh, just a, I don't want to say moral, I feel like that makes you sound self-righteous, but just from like a palatable, like taste, yeah. again, taste style, like perspective. Yeah. And also just from like, again, in that vein too, if it's in bad taste, it's going to affect you financially. Like you don't want to turn off, you don't want to turn off yeah. large, whether it's Asian Americans or Asian markets by showing that. And there's been a lot of nuclear tests. There's only been two nuclear like attacks. And so uh, I, I, it's and I'm not saying that to mansplain to you, Seth. I, I've been like talking it out as I'm saying it. Um, yeah. So apologies for the lecture. But I think, well, no, yeah. Like, I, I, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think the reason I, I would think about showing it if I was the director is just to really portray the massive power of the weapon, right? Like it's one thing to show the Trinity test and, and get an idea, but I do think if you really wanted to display the power and the amount of life that's lost to kind of capture that on screen, that would probably be my reason. I do think Nolan, he uses that uh, sequence that's kind of like a dream sequence, although he's giving a speech and he starts to see the, the people in the crowd he's giving the speech to start to be like blown away by an atomic blast basically. And it's like, you know, women and children, you know, being blown away. And so I think he tried to kind of do something that was like a little more personal to Oppenheimer to show that like he really was, you know, I think anybody would be traumatized morally if they were involved in something like that. And so I do think Oppenheimer, you know, had to carry that weight with him. And so I think Nolan kind of opted to something more like that on like a personal dream level to kind of like portray, you know, how, how much it weighed on him. But I don't, I like, again, I don't think he like truly captures the total power of the weapon without showing like the dropping of the bombs on the cities. What's interesting was I was more, I don't want to say interested because that's not the right term. I thought there would be more focus on the fallout. Like oh, that yeah, to me was yeah. the true, like for anyone who uh, survived the bomb, like they were lucky. Like I, that to me was like, and I won't go into the details. And if I, the reason I, I mentioned earlier, I listened to like a six part podcast about this and there's two episodes where they go in like hour long detail about the fallout of what happened. And I had to skip a lot of it. And I wasn't expecting them to go into great detail in terms of visualization but the fact that they like i think it's a, a quick mention about fallout like that that to me was something i would have appreciated a little more time on especially as the scientists were like that was a big tenet of the films that the scientists were really worried about what would happen and yeah. the fact that kind of brush over the radiation poisoning yeah. and <laughs> like I, I don't expect them to show the results again just because of how uh, graphic it is but yeah to, to me it was that's a good I point. I really like the film. It's just, it's missing. It's missing a note there. Yeah, that's a good, I, I agree. I do think at least there should be a conversation in Los Alamos between some of these scientists about like, what's this radiation really going to do, you know, post the bomb dropping? You're right. That conversation doesn't really show up in the movie. Well, and I think what one of the reasons might be, uh, granted, this is just one podcast I, podcast I listen to. Again, doesn't make it excellent, but the one of the things they mentioned was that was basically a big like blind spot for the project where it was basically one of those things where they're like, it could be bad. We don't know. Like wink, wink. <laughs> like we're going to like, yeah. it was like one of those things, like they were so focused on like the destructive, like potential. They weren't even like, they knew there would be radiation poisoning and, but they, they just like didn't care because they were more worried about right. the ignition, ign like, they were like, we can deal with that. Let's just not, as you, as you mentioned before, destroy the world and ignite the atmosphere. So it's like anything else is small potatoes. Um, but it, it, again, according to the podcast, it was one of those things where like as it came out and it was like, oh, you didn't know. And some of the scientists were like, well, actually, like we probably did. So yeah, for sure, that's not going too down that too far down the history trial. But uh, that was but that would be interesting. Like that was definitely that to me was the one element that really was missing from this film. Like if you're talking nuclear weapons, how do you not talk yeah, radiation yeah. poisoning? I agree. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I do think, I mean, I will say the third act, like I kind of get the criticisms too about it. Not, you know, you're watching a movie about the building of the atomic bomb and kind of like a, a change um, in world military, basically. And then for the third act to kind of be about a guy going for a presidential cabinet position 
again, not as monumental. Um, but I do think like the fact that you get to see Robert Downey really cook in that third act. Um, and then also like at the very end to have it come back to that conversation with Einstein that is about like, maybe we did the destroy the world. That was like a satisfying ending to me. That was, I think when I left the movie, I was like that, you know, I really enjoyed that very final scene. And so I think that kind of left me on a higher note than some of these people that are like upset with that third act of the movie. That, that I couldn't agree with you more to me, the, you nailed it. It pivots the focus of the film. It pivots like the energy of the film, the setting of the film. And it goes from, yeah, this thriller race against time. I heard someone describe it as a heist, which I really liked. It really is like almost a heist in the first two thirds. And then it becomes, you could call it like a mystery thriller, whatever in the third act. But for me, I liked, you know, you just nailed it. The finale (laughs) and the Robert Downey Jr. Element. And I thought Alden uh, Elrich is, was great too. Um, or Aaron Rick, whatever the heck his name is, but the guy who's ever playing the aide, yeah, everyone involved in the third act, it's some of the best acting. Like, whether yeah, it's the yeah. uh, Roger Rob, like every it is again, just, it's white guys in room talking to each other, but it's done so well. And <laughs> I really like the editing, I thought that was some of the best editing. I, like, I thought I've heard all these great things about Tenet and Dunkirk, i those films are not my favorite. The editing in the third act, I thought was some of the, I thought it was incredible. Like, I hope it wins for that because that, when I came out of it, I was like, that third act shouldn't work. But between the score and just like the way it's cut and like it, yeah. everything builds to that perfect, to that final conversation. And it's that, it's, I love it. I yeah. just, I think it ends on a perfect note. And uh, perfect's not the right word but it works and I, I really like it. Agree. Yeah, no. And I, like, I think again, in the hands of a different director, that conversation might've been revealed much earlier in the movie, or even in fact, when you first watch it and then the movie might just end with Downey not getting that position and then kind of being served to the media. Um, and I, I like, I think that would be a much less satisfying ending. And so the fact that Nolan kind of kept that ace in the hole on that conversation to the very last scene, again, I thought that was pretty masterful on his part. Um, and like, I, I mean, I don't want to say it saved the movie, but it definitely, it kicked that, the ending of the movie up a notch for me, for sure. Where it's like, if you just ended with Downey not getting the position, I'd be like, okay, that sucks for that guy, but at least we kind of know what happened. And like, this is a history movie and that's what happened. And like, it's all kind of tied up. But like the fact that he goes, again, the non-linear storytelling, I think that's the whole movie, you know, uses that nugget. It's all leveraging to that one moment at the end. I Just to build on that again, like, the last, the few movies have been about time, Dunkirk, Tenet, yeah. and again, and all the editing, and this film, I felt like played with time. It did a better job of any of those other films in terms of editing and like just playing with the viewer's sense of time and doing it in a way where like the story works. I, I was just, I, I, with that being said, <laughs> I was so blown away with this film. It might not surprise you. It's going to be high up on my list, but curious, where does this rank for you? I'll, after you go, I'll give you my, my list. For, for, like, for Nolan movies? For Nolan? For Nolan. For Nolan. Um, boy, that's a good question. I think <laughs> personally, also, yeah, personally, um, I still have Memento as my number one, Jake. I do think that's his most ingenious movie. I think it's the most creative movie. I think it's got great performances. Um, all and like, there's an ambiguity to that movie that still makes it interesting when you watch it and rewatch it. And so, Memento is still my number one. Um, I think my number two would be The Dark Knight. Um, great action sequences, great Heath Ledger performance. I think it's the peak of his comic comic book phase there. Um, this might be my. I think I'm going to put this number three for me. So I think I'm going Memento, Dark Knight, Oppenheimer. After that, um, boy, I don't know. I might kind of, I might go with Prestige. Um, you know, I think Dunkirk and Inception are kind of pretty close. Um, I'm not an Interstellar guy, and I'm not a Tenant guy. I didn't, I didn't. Uh, I'm not a fan of those two movies, so they, they would be further down on my list. So that, that's kind of where I fall. Uh, we're we're pretty similar. I, I had a Mount Rushmore, not really ranked, but for me, it's Memento, Dark Knight, this film. 
And then I like I include Inception in that fourth spot, but okay. it's um that's a You're soft a prestige guy? <laughs> I like I actually do like prestige, but in terms of like rewatchability, I love Inception. I think I can rewatch it. To me, that that's like his that is his one movie that feels like a theme park ride in a good way, like the best yeah. way possible. That's fair. I think, yeah, I think I would go back and forth. I mean, I think there are times where I dislike prestige and there are times where I'm kind of into it. Um, Same with Inception. So, but I I do think like Memento, um, Dark Knight and Oppenheimer, I think are pretty like infallibly, like those are very good movies that I I think only Nolan could have pulled those movies off as well. This film to me, in terms of like scope, it reminded me a lot of Memento. And again, I guess you're dealing with time, you're dealing with like heavily yeah, editing. It has similar editing techniques for sure. The black and, and so, white into the color. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. It's this to me in the best way possible. I could see those like lessons he'd learned, like the styles and flares from all those previous films. It. I am so excited. I, as you know, I also didn't, I wasn't a huge uh, Interstellar Tenet fan. So uh, D- Dunkirk, I thought, like, I appreciate, but it's not my favorite. So for him to do this film, which is not a comic book movie, but that I love, like, I, I feel like Nolan's back on track. Like, this is honestly, like, oh, after. I, felt, like, I mean, after Tenet, I was like, dude, you're just, I just felt like he was trying to be way too smart or like, too smart for anybody to understand it. And I, I just felt like it was an incomprehensible movie. And so for him to kind of pivot back to a biography, that's much easier for a, a viewer to follow. There's no tricks, you know, there's no like, you got to understand this or you got to understand how time can go backwards or something. It's like, he's still playing with time, but I think in a much more reasonable way, I, I thought it was a very good pivot for him. Loved it. All right, anything else you want to ask or talk about? We're ready to go to final scores here. Um, final question. <laughs> For you jake should we have dropped these bombs should we have done this should we have pulled out of the project when they made the bomb should somebody have said like we can't do this or was it just an inevitable thing that was going to happen and we had to do it first any thoughts on any of that kind of stuff any of the existential thoughts this movie brings up i the bombs are always going to be made and we're, we're going to make something bigger than this bomb one day. Assuming we're still like, as if we continue to grow, we're going to make something that can blow up a planet one day. I'm sure, like from the inside out. Like, well, yeah. But, I mean, now I think AI might be the right um, sign of kind of comparison at this point. Yeah, I mean, but with all that being said, I don't know. I, it's funny you say that. I've heard the argument that it's a war crime. Uh, I, I'm I have a mixed opinion, and I've changed facilitated over time. I think. It had to be done for, like, and maybe not had, let me rephrase that. I, the if the argument is, I would never be able, if it were me, I would say don't, I, if I were Truman, I wouldn't have dropped the bombs. I'd be like, let's hold on to it. Like, let's not. But with that being said, if the argument is, if the argument to drop them was to end the war, to stop Russia and to potentially put an end to all world wars, then, you know, granted the world's still going. So we, there hasn't been, like we don't know, but at the same time, 80 years later, it accomplished those objectives and Japan's now one of our strongest allies. Like, so, and that's because of like, so like, I, I don't, and the other thing too is like Japan, like people were gonna die. Like, so this is the stat I heard to like kind of justify why we did it leading up to the uh, leading up to the, the invasion before the bombs were dropped, they made a uh, 400,000 purple hearts in anticipation of the invasion of Japan. They have given out, I believe like 200, like 130,000 purple hearts since then. There's still 250,000 purple hearts. Basically every purple heart they've ever given out since world war two is from the, they're right. from the world war two bat from the Japanese batch. So like, I don't know, like, is dropping a bomb, I, the, if on paper, the math makes sense. You drop two bombs that kill 200,000 people or 300,000 people and you save right. one million, two million lives. Yeah. I get that math. I could never, ever make that call though. Like that, if it, for me, like I, I would be one of the scientists and be like, let's give them one more chance just because. I, well, so th- this is my opinion. Um, I think I would have, 
Uh, I forget the name of the guy, the, the emperor of Japan at the time, but... Hirohito. Hirohito, thank you. I would have contacted that guy and been like, look, we're going to go out to the middle of the ocean and we're going to show you this, right? Yeah. And we will show you what we can do. And I would have detonated one out in the Pacific somewhere and just shown him, like, this is what's going to happen if you don't surrender. This is your last chance, right? And, like, mm -hmm. give them that moment to kind of, like, bring your scientists if you want, anybody you want... We're going to watch this. You're going to see it. You'll know the power that we have, right? And, like, I would have done that and then been, like, it's time for you to surrender. And then if they don't, then go, again, if they continue to fight and kill our soldiers, and like you said, if it's going to cost a million lives, we're not going to do that, and then we'll drop them. But I do think, like, it seemed like they got the bomb and they just had to use it in a way. And it's, like, I, and I agree with the other point, too, that they wanted to show the world that they had that power. And it wasn't just about Japan. Um and so, again, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, if you showed a test to the world and brought leaders from around the world to watch it, if that would have had the same effect as opposed to, like, what they did. Um, but that, I mean, personally, that's what I would have tried to do is just kind of, like, shown them what we had so that they could be, you know, a little more informed before we actually dropped it on their big cities. I would have supported that. Like, that would have had my vote. If I had a vote yeah. in it, that's exactly. Because, I mean, it's... an nation of islands find one that's uninhabited or clear yeah, it out yeah. like that you because they we were occupying a number of them at that point too you could also do it somewhere where like hey stay on your island watch this island over here right and you're gonna see it for miles away and no yeah i mean I, that's the to i that's what i agree with the the issues i've always had is i understand dropping one to test it but then why did we drop the second? But then the argument I also heard is Japan didn't surrender after the first one. So it's like, and there's also, they're also being invaded by Russia. It was also World War II. Like it was, yeah, like, yeah, it was yeah. just, it yeah. was. And the one thing I thought, that, they didn't really talk about this, but it's interesting. Oppenheimer, later in life, there was a play, like a Broadway play came out and it portrayed it more so as like the idea, like Oppenheimer, like considered it a tragedy, like the nuclear bomb being a tragedy. And like, it was like more the tragic angle and he was like Cassandra, like crying into the winds. And he was really vehemently against that. And he called out, he's like, you may have forgotten any named, like all these bombing campaigns, both allied and Axis bombing campaigns. But like one of the things that people like, as people don't realize is we had these, we and the UK bombed certain cities, namely Dresden and Hamburg and, yeah. and Tokyo. And like there were three or four bombing campaigns that killed way more civilians than the nuclear bombs did because one of the things that the u.s and uh the uk did was they created these firestorms and so what they would do was they would drop bombs that didn't like blow up and land but they would blow up in the air and ignite and create in effect right. like giant giant literally just fire tornado storms and japan was like 90 percent of their houses were made out of paper mache and so ultimately it was something insane. I think it was like 80% of Japanese people were displaced at the end of the war and like 70% of Germans from bombing from yeah. that's not including yeah, this. Yeah. The, Dr so the Dresden bombing in particular, I think was like pretty severe. And like, I know slaughterhouse five Kurt Vonnegut novels, like specifically about that event. And like, it's horrifying. <laughs> it's considered the most brutal. And it's also considered among like talking about, do we need to bomb the need to bomb? Nag the need to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Dresden bombings specifically, there was no military value to Dresden. It's a cultural city. And yeah, I sure. say that, like, I, I'm not defending Nazi Germany or anything, but, like, there was no military hardware there. And the one of the reasons why there wasn't a lot of... It was very cultural, big cultural center. And that was done purely out of spite. Uh, and again, I'm not blaming the Allies either. The, the Blitz, like, and that was where, like, Oppenheimer's like, I remember the Blitz. I remember the fascist bombings in Spain of the Republicans. He's like, I, and it's like, yeah, like, I remember Pearl Harbor and it was war yeah. and everyone was, and that was one of the things that I did appreciate for this film was it wasn't about the morality of making a bomb because it's like, they were yeah, all killing right. each yeah. other. It's, it's when do you use it? And like, do you use it? That, that's what I enjoyed. I do, yeah, I do. A, a different director, I think, would have played that up hugely in the second act or second third act of the movie after they've created the bomb. I think they would have overplayed Oppenheimer kind of being anti bomb and anti nukes and stuff almost to almost to a fault. Like you know, if this was a Steven Spielberg movie, I guarantee that aspect of been played 
because he would have wanted to kind of like remoralize the character or something like that. Um, and I, 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 I appreciated how no one handled it. Sorry, Craig, I was going to say it would end with him holding Albert, Albert Einstein's hand asking, am I a good man? Can I live a good life, Albie? Was I good? Sorry, I uh, didn't mean to cut you off there. I thought we just talked about no, right. Pat Ryan, though, folks, so I had to drop that in. Um, okay, you want to do final scores? Yeah, I'm I, I'm going to give this score – this might be high. I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. I, I just – I think it's, it's, it, it's getting a little bump for me in terms of like difficulty and like pulling it off. Uh, it, yeah, it's a little long. It's a, the woman characters a little problematic in terms of uh, not just let me rephrase that. The female characters aren't fully balanced. The, it's yeah. definitely male centric. And but with that being said, I was riveted. This is a three hour war movie without any war. And I couldn't look away from the screen. And it ultimately culminates with a Robert Downey Jr. with a receding hairline in a hearing I don't care about, like working as in the emotional climax with this, with the Albert Einstein speech. Yeah, I just loved it. Like to me, not only was this showing me that Nolan's back, but it showed me that like he still. I, this isn't his best film, but I know his best is yet ahead. Like, I know he's going to continue to push the envelope. And now I'm, like, more excited about his next film. Because for the last 10 years, I've been a little... its I haven't been excited, and now I'm super excited. Because it's like, okay, he's back. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm close with you. Um, I agree. I mean, for Nolan in particular, he's never done a movie quite like this or in this genre. And so I think for him to kind of, like, change genres and just knock it out of the park the way he did does make me excited for him and his future um i think after tenant i was worried like are we going to keep getting more confusing is that the direction we're headed like you know and so i'm happy he kind of he came back um to a movie like this executed it perfectly um i do i think murphy uh downey and damon are, are really the three biggest roles and i think all three of them do a very solid job again i kind of think downey steals it a little bit i wouldn't be surprised if murphy Got a Best Actor nomination. I wouldn't be surprised if Downey won Best Supporting Actor. Not sure if Damon will get nominated, but I did think Damon was solid in his role too. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, I think the storytelling, especially the device um, with the Einstein speech, to, to not reveal that until the very end worked very well to save the ending of the movie. Um, not that it was, again, like I think you could de debate that third act a lot, but the fact that Downey really performs well in that third act and the fact that they end with that Einstein uh dialogue um again I I would I, I can remember leaving the theater like, wow I didn't expect it to end quite like that and and I I really do feel like it bumped my score up a little bit I'm gonna come in at 8.7 Jake I'm gonna come in just underneath you I don't think it quite hit the nine level for me um but again this movie's just been released, you know, for all I know, in three to five years, I might look back and be like, you know what, this really was, like, this is a classic movie, like, it should be up that high. It's, well, those are two good scores, my friend, and those nine and eight point seven. Yeah. Should we, should we turn the lights off on this, on this old, old, old movie? You can drop the bomb on it. <laughs> oh, you said it, make, make it two. <laughs> good, goodbye, friends. Bye. <laughs>